Well, you may notice things look a little different this morning. I'm a, a larger man around the midsection, but a smaller man in very many other ways. And that pulpit was large and in charge. And I'm also a guy who likes to move my hands a lot when I talk and preach. And so for a while I've thought about changing things. So this week I did. So we'll see how it works. See if we can maintain it or not. Uh, I feel more free. Um, Hopefully that will be helpful. If it's not, I hope I will be wise enough to see that it's not. Um, But this morning we are back in Ephesians chapter 4. And in this great book we've been in, we are now at the point where the unity of the faith is being talked about and how to maintain it. And so I'm going to read to us the opening of chapter 4. Actually, I'm going to begin in the end of chapter 3. Verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Let's ask for God's help this morning. Father, we are always in constant need of You, and we need You this morning to do the supernatural work that Your Spirit often does, and we plead that He would do it today, that He would open our minds and our hearts, and He would change us, that we would leave different than we were and that we would walk according to the great calling of His salvation found in Christ. We thank You. We pray this in His name. Amen. So, we now have an appeal by Paul that we started talking about last week towards unity and love. And the first mark that he gives of what that sort of unity and love looks like is humility. And humility is, C.S. Lewis defines humility as not thinking of yourself less, but thinking of others more, basically. And it's, it's not, sorry, I messed it up. Not, it's not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less, which means you will be thinking of others more. And this is a very difficult thing for all of us to do. We like our own things. It's fitting that on this Sunday I decided this week to do something for myself, which is to change the pulpit on a week that I'm preaching on humility and thinking of others. Because why did I change the pulpit? Well, not particularly because of any of you, but because of me. Is that humble? Can you do things that are of your own 
will that are humble? I think the answer is yes. But we have to be very careful that we're not thinking of ourselves as better than others. And Paul is the example par excellence in Scripture of this. Over and over, Paul could assert that he is the most important of all the apostles. Indeed, he wrote 13 of the New Testament letters. This is a man used by God to evangelize the entire world, and not just during his time, but for 2,000 years. And he knew it when he was writing, that his words would live on. And yet, he does not speak that way of himself. He asserts his authority as an apostle when he has to, but most of the time he speaks of himself in very different terms, including right here in Ephesians, as I pointed out a couple weeks ago, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord. In the book of 1 Corinthians, he says that we are thought of as the scum of the earth, the scourge of the earth. This is the way of the Christian mind, to be absolutely aware of yourself so that you might be humble. So what does that mean? How can you be humble if you're always thinking about yourself? It's thinking about yourself rightly that makes you humble. Thinking about yourself wrongly makes you proud. And so one of the great ways that God humbles us, including we sang the song, I think last week I asked the Lord that I might grow in grace and faith. And what did he do? He, he put pressure on John Newton to feel the weight of his own sin. Oftentimes, the way to humility is a real, real looking at yourself and saying, I am undone by my own sin. And if you have that mind that your own sin that dwells in here and bursts out is actually your own worst enemy and the worst enemy of all your neighbors, you begin to become humble. And it leads to gentleness. One of the most helpful passages I can think of in regards to this is in Galatians, just a couple pages before. Paul is talking to the Galatians who have all kinds of things going wrong in their church. All kinds of stuff. And Paul comes to them, and he says this at the end of chapter 5, going into chapter 6. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if any is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So notice something here. We can do the work of seeing sin in another's life and thinking, I think I can help that. That's, in fact, one of the jobs of the pastor and the elders is to see and then restore. So, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch, and here is humility. So that's gentleness, and then here is the, the humble part. This is the hard part. This is, in fact, impossible to do without the Spirit. Keep watch on yourself, lest you, too, be tempted. Tempted to what? The same sorts of sins. 
Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. There is a very real temptation when we see the sins of others which are apparent to us that we think that we would never sin in those ways and therefore we are better than them. It's pride. It's pride. We are all alike together. There is not any of us who are above particular sins. And when we look at others, we ought to realize we too stumble in many ways and are just as prone to do it in that particular way if we are not careful. This is humility. The second way God humbles us is through suffering. It's hard to be proud when you suffer. Just think of the humiliation of being in a hospital room, in a hospital dress, in a bed, hooked up to all kinds of things, on display. I've been in a lot of hospital rooms. Thankfully, not as yet, my own hospital room. But the day is coming, right? The day is coming when I too will feel the humiliation of being in a bed on display. And it's very hard to be proud in a hospital room. It's very hard because everything is there. You are broken. You know it. I know it. They know it. Doctors know it. Everybody knows it. And so you can't go, well, I'm fine. <laughs> Don't worry about me. I, I can take care of this. Don't you sweat. I know. There are people who try to do that, and oftentimes they end up in significantly worse shape when they do it. If they would have just been humble and let the doctors take care of them, they probably would have gotten better sooner. We ought to be this sort of humble with one another when we suffer. That we are laid bare through suffering, and it's difficult. And we ought to be this humble with one another when we sin. This is the hardest part of the Christian life, humility. It's a base character trait, though. It is what defines the Christian, what marks him as different than a non-Christian. When uh, you think about this, humility does everything to restore the peace and purity of the church. Think about just in regular conflict with your family. How is the peace restored in your family? You've had a fight, you're at odds. There was yelling, there was cantankerousness, there was tension at the dinner table. How is it ever broken? How can you resolve that? It's somebody at some point going, I'm sorry. And it just like instantly deflates everything, doesn't it? And how hard is that to do? It's extremely hard to do. To say, I was wrong, it was me. I was the one. Because we wouldn't be in the fight to begin with if we thought we were the one in the wrong, would we? You always think you're right. I always think I'm right. 
Humility is the ability to see yourself truly, really, as you are. And that is in desperate need of the grace of God. And that's why I started where I did in Ephesians, because He is able to do far more abundantly. And we need His abundance every day. Not just at the beginning of the Christian life, but every day as a Christian, we need His help and grace to be humble. Reading Scripture, studying theology, is one of the strangest things in all the world. Because we tend to think if you know a lot of the Bible and know a lot of theology, you ought to be a humble person. But without the spirits, very few who know lots of Bible and theology are humble. And you have met them and you know them. They are those who refuse to let anyone else have a word in edgewise. And I know, because that is one of my continual sins. I always think I have the right answer to any problem that presents itself. This has been my sin since I was quite young. And it is only by the grace of God that it doesn't overpower my life now. And this is true of all of you. You, each of you, know your sins better than me, better than the people around you, if you are actually honest with yourself. If you actually take the time to look and say, what am I always doing? How am I always getting into things with people? Why am I always going this place in my mind instead of to this place? Because we know what love actually is. We know what it is because God defines it for us. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. Here's one. It keeps no record of wrong. How many of us are humble enough to not keep in the back of our mind this event in 2012? This event in 2013? This event in 2017, this particular thing in last month, this thing yesterday. And so when we get into a fight because of our sin and the other person's sin, how many of us have the humility to bear with one another and to not bring up, hold against a record of wrong? It seems almost impossible. And by almost, I mean it does seem impossible. Because it is. To do what Christ has called us to do through Paul, to be humble and gentle and patient and bearing with one another, is an impossible task. It is impossible. Think about what it means to be patient with each other. There are lots of ways we can think about this. But one of the ways that we are particularly impatient with people is in their spiritual growth. We think that a person who has been in the church for a year or two years or ten years or twenty years or thirty years or fifty years ought to be at this level of spiritual maturity. And if they're not, we doubt whether they even know God. And it's always particular things. It's particular sins that particularly bother us. We're not patient. 
And there are lots of reasons we ought to be patient with each other. It's hard to grow in Christ. Impossible, in fact. It's only by God's kindness and grace that we grow at all. And here's the other fact. Some of us Christians bear fruit 30-fold, some of us 60-fold, and some of us 100-fold. Which means the same people in the same church for 50 years together, one might be a 30-fold. And that is what God has had for him in his entire life. And another might be a 100-fold. And so the growth in godliness will look different. But this guy who's got the hundredfold often looks down and says, I'm impatient with this guy because he just won't get on board. He won't do the things. He won't, he won't, he won't. Patience with one another. And that leads directly into this bearing with one another. Not just in sins, but with infirmities. They're not the same. We ought to bear with one another in our sin. We ought to be able to forgive one another. To look past things, right? Love keeps no record wrong. Love covers sin. Are we willing to cover sin with our love? Love bears with the infirmities of one another. Things that aren't particularly sinful, but are unbearable. Ticks quirks, whatever language you want to use, things that you can't go, that is wrong and wicked of you to do. It's just not the way you would do it. So I'm going to use a few examples that you may or may not relate to. I think you will. Uh, How many of you know how to load a dishwasher? Do you know some people who don't know how to load a dishwasher? Is that an infirmity or a sin? Most of us regard it as a sin, don't we? We look at the particular way someone does something, and it is not the way we think you ought to do that, and it is not sinful for them to do that. It's infirm, perhaps. The dishes don't get clean. You have to run the cycle twice. You have to hand wash them afterwards. It's irritating. Bear with one another. That's in the home, right? What about in the church? Well, this morning, again, fittingly, you almost think I might have done this on purpose this Sunday as I was preparing to preach. You may think it's not good for me to have changed the pulpit. Perhaps not. Perhaps it was wrong. Perhaps it was sinful. But the reason I did it is because I feel my infirmity in that pulpit, which is just right here, in case you're wondering where I put it. And so now I'm asking you to deal with my infirmity in this way. Can we do it? Can we bear with one another? We might think it's good to do a certain activity for our church. Let's say we did Christianity Explored last summer. But perhaps you thought we should have done it in a different way, met at a different time, served a different sort of food. Can we actually bear with one another? And this is different than grinning and bearing it, which we're all very good at, right? Everyone can just go, no, thank you. The coffee was delicious. 
Thank you. I enjoyed that punch very much. Thank you so much for bringing that cake that you threw away when they left. Right? We're all very good at bearing with a grin all things, aren't we? But is that actually bearing with one another? No. No. Bearing with one another is significantly different than that. It is a spiritually empowered, unbelievable love for one another in the midst of their weakness. That's hard. It is, in fact, impossible. Humility, impossible. Gentleness, impossible. Patience, impossible. Bearing with one another, impossible. Eagerness. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. How many of us wake up in the morning and think, boy, am I eager to make the bond of peace with this particular person today. We think, boy, it's just going to be so great to work out the spiritual unity we have in Christ. No, none of us thinks that. We think, maybe they won't be at church today. And then I won't have to say anything, and then maybe I can forget about it, and then I won't do it, and then everything will just get washed out in the end. This is how we generally do this. This is how we think about what it means to be bearing with one another, humble with one another. We think just, eventually I'll forget about it. I'll stop noticing it. It won't be a big deal to me anymore. And that's unity. It's not unity. Unity is eagerness. Eagerness. Larry McCall, one of my former pastors, talked about this. Blessed are the peacemakers. And he said, peacemakers are peace wagers. They actually actively pursue peace. You cannot be a peacemaker and be 2,000 miles away. You actually have to be in the room with people who are fighting to make peace. You can't have peace without conflict in front of you being meted out. You have to be eager to do this work of bearing with one another, being patient with one another, being gentle with one another, and being humble with one another eager to do it. Again, not possible. A lot of people, probably most of you, think that I am always ready for a battle. I have a bit of a personality that seems to come across as Joe's just always got his fist up and ready to tumble. If you ask my wife what I am like at home after these battles, I can assure you I do not like to do it at all, ever. Lays me up, physically, mentally, exhausts me. I hate it. Is that spiritual? Is that good? No. I ought to be eager, especially as a pastor. How do I do it then? How do I get eager? How do I become humble? How do you become eager and humble and gracious and gentle. The power of the unity of the Spirit. There is one body. How many? One. Guess what you don't get to pick? Who joins himself to that one body? You don't get to pick the body. You don't get to pick the parts of the body. God does. 
God picks us and says, you will bear with him. You will bear with her. You will be humble with them. You will be gentle with them. Not gentle with the ones you would like to be gentle with, but one body, God's body, Christ's body, the church. One body, one spirit, God's spirit. Just as you were called to one hope, one hope. We cannot be unified. We cannot be bearing with one another. We can't be doing the impossible if we believe in different hopes. It's impossible. And it's not an impossible thing that can be reconciled through the power of the Spirit. If we have a different hope than other people, we will not ever be united with them. There is no bond of peace. So this is true of you-name-it kind of things. It, it gets dicier the closer we get together, but we cannot maintain one spirit, one body with those who have a different hope than us. And so we need to have one hope. One Lord, our Lord Christ, who we confessed this morning, this is where a lot of difficulty comes. We technically know it, Right? We're not one with Mormons or Jehovah's Witness or oneness Pentecostals because they don't believe in the triunity of God and the Son. They believe something else. But it's very difficult if you meet a very wonderful, loving Mormon, Jehovah's Witness, apostolic Pentecostal, carries around their King James New Testament. It's very difficult to say, I actually don't have unity with you. Unity actually requires you to actually do something called discernment. And discern, do you have the same hope as me? Do you have the same Lord as me? Do we have the same faith, one faith? Do we have the same baptism, one baptism? Do we have the same God and Father? It requires discernment. And all of this, all of this, impossible. We are bad at discerning. We are bad at thinking about other people and the faith that they proclaim and whether or not it's actually in accord with the Scripture. One, because we don't know our Bibles very well. But two, because this really feels against everything I just preached on about humility to say, you actually believe a different gospel. We are not in accord here. That doesn't sound humble to our ears. It doesn't sound gentle to our ears. It doesn't sound bearing with to our ears, but it is, in fact, essential to the unity of the body. We cannot have unity where there is not oneness spiritually because the unity of the body is built on the bond of peace based on what peace is, which is the knowledge of God. And if you think something different about who God is, we will never have peace. So we need the truth of the gospel in all its oneness, one body, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And we need this unbelievable power that Paul talks about in chapter 3. We need the power of the Spirit. And so it is essential when we begin to think about what Christians must do, what we must do, how we are to maintain the Spirit's of peace and unity in this church, in our presbytery, 
in the church across churches. We are dependent. Absolutely, totally dependent on the God who made all things. Prayer, in fact, is where the war of peace is waged. Prayer is how the power of God comes alive in the people, in the one body. Because prayer is where you humble yourselves below the mighty hand of God. Prayer is where you come and say, I have sinned, please forgive me. Prayer is where you come and say, I am infirm and weak and I cannot do. Prayer is where you come and say, I don't think I can bear them one more time. And you humble yourself and you say, this is impossible, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't maintain this false peace. I need real peace. I can't maintain the grin and bear it attitude with this person one more time. You need real peace. You need real unity. You need the Spirit. We have to be, as John Bungan said, we have to be beggars. Beggars before the feet of Christ. We are that. The final word I have for us this morning in how to practically apply this. How we might, a good way I think of thinking about what it means to be eager to maintain this bond of peace. This is from Matthew Henry. The best Christians have need to bear one with another and to make the best of one another. And then here is how He applies this. Here is how he says, this is like a shorthand of this passage. To provoke one another's graces and not their passions. How do you wage peace? It's not by easing off of one another, not being involved, ignoring everything that's going on. It's by being actively involved and provoking one another, urging one another, exhorting one another, as long as today is called today, that we might love God together. Provoking grace in people rather than provoking passion, which is the easier thing to do. It's always the easier thing to do, to rile somebody up. We know what gets under each other's skins. The longer we're together, the more we know it. You know it because you all grew up, which means you figured out how to get under your parents, you figured out how to get under your siblings, you figured out how to get under your teachers, you figured out how to get under your bosses, Far more time in our life is spent figuring out how to provoke the passions of people. Then what happens is, say in the workplace, you know what goads your boss. And so then your boss erupts. And then you can point to your boss and say, look how mean he is. Look what he did. The other way to provoke the grace in people, the body, this body, is to try to figure out ways that you can bring out the Spirit of God in somebody that they might show forth love to our church. How can you figure out how to provoke this person who irritates you? Not so that you can point and go, aren't that irritating? Can you believe they said that? What can we figure out how to do to make this person one, maintain the unity? How can we provoke the grace that God has given to each of us. I think Matthew Henry has it right. 
As verse 7 says, but grace was given to each one of us. Provoke that grace. Find that grace in each other. And most of all, overall, under all, through all, depend on God to do it. You will fail. I will fail. We have all failed. We need God's grace to provoke grace so that we might be one, so that the world might know the one God and Father of all. Let's pray this morning and then we will sing together.